All right, you can have a seat. Welcome, we're so glad that you are with us today. Those of you who are watching online, those of you out in the Great Room Coffee Shop, the coffee shop is open this weekend. And we're excited about that. We have more people out there than in here right now. And, uh, and so that's really cool. And we're uh, thankful as, as kind of more people are getting vaccinated that we're able to kind of start opening some things up. And, uh, and so it's just really cool opening up the coffee shop this weekend. So I hope after the service, those of you who are in here, if you didn't already stop by, maybe after the service, stop by and grab a cup of coffee. Uh, a lot of stuff that is happening uh, in our church, and uh, we just want you to be aware of it. So uh, take a look at this. Okay, Fairfax, it's me again. We have a couple of announcements for you. I know that we say this every week, but we really are so excited that you're here, but we don't want it to stop there. We really want you to get connected and be a part of this community. If you're new here, we would love to meet you. If you wanna join a group, if you're new or you're not new, but you're not part of a group, we want you to join a community of people that you can do life with. All of those things you can find more information about on our website and at the welcome table. Now I know what some of you are thinking, Kayla, I'm not new here and I've already joined a group. That is amazing, but there is more. We would love it if every single person who calls Fairfax home was part of a team. And by a team, I mean serving in any of the amazing opportunities that we have both in the building, online, and in our local community. In the building, we have a ton of options for you to get involved, for you and your family to serve, whether it's in kids' ministry, in students, in the coffee shop, with worship or production, you name it, and we can find a spot for you. If you're still watching online, we would love for you to be part of our live hosting team. And if you want to grab some friends or family members or members from your small group and you want to serve together in your local community, we also have a ton of opportunities for you to do that. You can find all the list of opportunities on our website and more. The point is we would love for you to join a team and gain a family today. Fairfax, there is so much more that I could say, but I will leave it at that. I love you guys so much. We have an amazing message prepared for you. I'll see you guys later. All right, a couple things before uh, we jump into the message uh, today. One is that uh, generosity is one of the core values of this place that um, we Believe that we are in relationship with a generous God who has given everything for us and that part of living out our relationship with him is uh, living generous lives. Not just financially, but with our time and our energy and our emotions and everything, just being willing to give our life away. And this is a congregation that embodies that. Uh, in so many ways, and we're so thankful for your generosity and, and specifically thankful for your generosity financially uh, to this place. We, we preach and teach the biblical principle of the tithe, and so many of you are faithful to that, many of you that are generous beyond that. And, uh, and if you want to give as an act of worship today, if you're new or you're kind of trying to figure out uh, if you're going to be connected here or whatever, there's a lots of ways that you can do that. There's boxes in the back of the sanctuary. You can put your tithes and offerings in. If you're online, there's a little give button that you can uh, click, and that'll kind of start the process. And if you want to text to give, you can text uh, uh, Fairfax Give to 77977. You can give that way as well. So thank you so much for that. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to say is that this week uh, I had the opportunity to get my second 
vaccination. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. Thankful for, uh, yeah, just thankful for the folks that uh, have given their lives and talents to make this vaccine possible and, and kind of create a greater sense of safety in our country. And and uh, people have asked, like, how did you do? Like, people are always like wondering to do the second vaccine, you know, and I, no problem at all. I got it on Tuesday, no problem. The only little thing I had was just a little bit of a headache, but I think that may have had to do with the fact that I also had to do my taxes this week. And uh, I think there was a connection to that. So uh, we're excited about the fact that a growing number of folks in our church are, uh, are getting vaccinated. Our prayer, actually, we know that Maybe for some folks with some medical issues that they're dealing with, they have to kind of think all that through. But we're, our prayer is that by the end of June that the vast majority of folks who are part of Fairfax will be vaccinated. And, and that will give us a chance starting in July maybe to do some things a little bit more normal in terms of our worship events and all of that. And we will continue to provide options so that kind of wherever you are and whatever you need to feel safe and, and whether it's online or in some additional spaces that we're going to be creating or in here, whatever it is, uh, we want to provide lots of opportunities so folks can uh, kind of uh, function as they relate to the church in a way that they feel comfortable with and they feel safe with and, and all that. But we're excited. There's some changes I think are coming and, uh, and I can't, I just, I can't wait. And um, I just want you to know that for some of you that maybe haven't started that process or you still have some questions, you're not quite sure where to turn to get, we've created a kind of a vaccination hotline. And if you want to talk to someone or text someone, you can do that 703 646 7036, or if you want to email someone, just vaccination at fairfax.cc, and you get a live person on the other side of that, and not only can kind of point you in the right direction, but if you just have questions, you know, there's so much stuff out there, and we listen to so much stuff, but maybe for some of you, you go, I think I can trust kind of the church and where the church is coming out on this, and so if you have questions about that, you can talk to someone, and they can kind of process that with you as well. All right, so we're in this 11-week uh, series in the book of Acts. It's called Witness. We're in week four. And uh, as we've mentioned every week, Acts is basically about how the church was launched uh, after the resurrection, after Jesus ascends to the Father, of how the church was launched and how the church moved from being this little kind of sect to being this multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, global Movement And Jess Eiflug did an amazing job last week talking about the fact that one of the things that transformed the church into this multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, multinational movement was, was actually persecution. And particularly, it was the stoning of Stephen. Before that event took place, the church was primarily contained in the city of Jerusalem. Now, it had grown by Thousands, and there were probably 10, 12, maybe 15,000 people that were followers of Jesus. It was taking over the city. It was a movement that was, that was uh, bringing people to Christ. People were getting saved every day, but it was primarily located in one city. But after the stoning of Stephen and after the persecution that resulted um, after the stoning of Stephen, the church began to expand into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in that kind of part of the known world. And you remember in Acts 1, that's what Jesus promised. Jesus said that I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit and you will be 
you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, but in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I, I would imagine that the church never could have imagined that the means through which that would take place would be through some really hard, difficult stuff. But that's the way that God so often works, is that he takes difficult things and he, is, he takes things sometimes that are evil, sometimes things that are horrible, and is able to redeem it and restore it in a way that it still advances his kingdom. And Jess did a great job talking about how the confidence and assurance that Stephen showed, even in the face of death, became contagious. It just began to spread. And it wasn't just that followers of Jesus became confident and assured in the face of death. It was that they became confident and assured as they faced life, like they willingly gave their lives to the God who had given them life. They gave their breath, their pneuma, to the one who had given them pneuma, had given them life. One of the participants in the stoning of Stephen was a guy by the name of Saul. And some of you know the story of Saul who becomes Paul and and Saul is there at Stephen's stoning. He becomes the guy that people give their coats to so that they can participate in it. And the text says that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. In other words, he was excited about the fact that Stephen was being put to death. And Saul was this abusive, violent zealot who was convinced that this little follower, this little group following Jesus had to be destroyed had to be wiped off the face of the planet. And so after Stephen stoning, Saul goes on this rampage to, to round up as many followers of Jesus as he can possibly round up, to put them in prison, to persecute them, in some cases to put them to death. He kind of goes on this rampage to wipe them off the face of the planet. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 9. Verse one, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now this is the last guy. I know that when I talk about Saul, some of you that have been raised in the church, like you immediately go, oh, Saul is Paul, and he becomes a follower of Jesus and all of that. And, and, and sometimes we kind of get to the, he, comes, he becomes a follower of Jesus too quick because this is the last guy in the world you would imagine ever becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not just that Saul doesn't buy into the whole Jesus thing. He thinks it's dangerous. He thinks that it doesn't fit the cultural narrative of the day. He thinks it needs to be eradicated from the planet. This isn't a guy who is just indifferent towards Jesus and the church. This isn't a guy who just thinks the church is totally irrelevant and, and just out of touch. I mean, there's a lot of people that think, you know, the church is just totally irrelevant, it's just out of touch, it's just kind of rooted in some historical myths of the past and all that. This is not a guy who thinks the church is just out of touch or just kind of irrelevant. This is a guy who is hostile toward Jesus and the church. This is a guy who thinks Jesus is the problem. And so somewhere along the way, Saul's life mission becomes trying to destroy anything or anyone that was connected to all of this crazy Jesus stuff. 
This is a guy that most of us would have looked at and said, no way this guy is ever coming to Jesus. No way Jesus can ever reach this guy. But Jesus does reach this guy because Jesus can reach anyone. Jesus can reach people that we've stopped praying for because we've been praying and praying and praying and it just seems like nothing is ever going to change. Jesus can reach your spouse. Jesus can reach your son. Jesus can reach your daughter. Jesus can reach your friends. And here's what some of you need to hear today. Jesus can reach you. That I know that for some of you, your journey, like all of our journeys are different, but for some of you, you've had this journey, this kind of asymmetrical journey where, where you're here or you're listening or whatever because at some level there's been an interest there, but then you struggle with stuff, you, you are influenced by stuff, there's things that continue to enslave your life that you don't want to enslave your life, and you've kind of given up on yourself. Like you think, well, maybe it's still good to kind of do a little bit of the religious stuff and maybe show up for church and all of that, but I really feel like nothing's ever going to change and you have given up on yourself. Jesus has not given up on you and Jesus can reach you. And so as Saul is on his way to Damascus to do whatever he can do to destroy the church, Jesus reaches Saul. And this is what we read. I'm just gonna read the whole passage. It's verse Three to verse 18, it's a long passage, but I want you to hear the whole narrative of how this takes place. Paul neared Damascus on his journey, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. He was blind, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind. He did not eat anything. He didn't drink anything. And in Damascus, this is an interesting part of the story. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to Ananias in a vision and said, Ananias, and yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come to him, place his hands on him, restore his sight. Now, Ananias at this point is going, I want to be in the yes position to God. And I'm in relationship with Jesus, and I'm a, I'm a part of the way, and I put my life on the line and all of that. But I'm not certain that God really kind of understands what he's saying at this point. Because there's things that I know about this guy that maybe God doesn't know about this guy. And so maybe on this particular thing, it's like, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus, but I'm not sure this is the place where I should say yes. And so he kind of responds back. He says, Lord, I have heard many reports as if the Lord has not heard those reports. So it's like, he's like, he's saying, hey, I need to fill you in on some things about the details of what you're asking me to do. Because you may not be fully aware of all the complexities, all the layers, you know, you're looking at it from heavenly perspective, you don't really kind of get it. So let me fill you in. 
So he fills him in. I've heard many reports about this man, all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, here's what the Lord didn't say, but is obviously we know is true. Um, yeah, I know that, Ananias. Like, I'm fully aware of who this guy is and what he's done and all of that. But he says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. This guy. Think about Ananias hearing that. This guy who is on his way to eradicate the way, followers of Jesus on the face of the planet, this guy God is saying, is my chosen instrument to advance my mission, to, to advance this mission to take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's my chosen vessel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from, Saul, fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. Now, let me say, for some of us, like we've read that story a lot. Maybe for some of you, it's relatively new. And that's the thing about reading something so often is you lose it loses some of the impact, but. When you read that story through fresh eyes, you should come to the end of that story and go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This guy is on his way to destroy the lives of those who follow Jesus. And three days later, the same people who he's on the way to destroy their lives are baptizing him. Are you kidding me? And Saul becomes Paul and begins to take the gospel that he was trying to destroy to the ends of the earth, I can't even begin to get my mind around that transformation. Now, not all conversion stories obviously are as dramatic as Saul's, but some are. You know, there's all kinds of conversion stories. And whatever you, whether you say, you know, getting saved or coming to Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, being converted, whatever, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about someone whose life has been transformed, saved, restored, redeemed, brought life into, um, no longer enslaved, all of that. We're talking about someone who has come to Jesus. And not everyone's story is dramatic as Paul's, but, but some are dramatic. And uh, you may remember a few weeks ago, Raj, who led us in worship today, told the story how when he was a young man, that he was in his car, had got in his car, was on his way to do something destructive to himself, and Jesus just reached him. And it wasn't on the Damascus road, it was on another road. But on another road, Jesus just reaches into Raj's life, and Raj pulls over and, and is converted. I mean, gives his life to Jesus, and, and Jesus spares his life and saves his life. And everything that has happened in his life, including the impact he has on his family, the impact that he has on our church, the impact he has on worship, the impact he's had on me, all of that is because Jesus met him on another road. 
So it's not always the Damascus road. Sometimes Jesus meets us on another road. Sometimes it's dramatic. Some of you have come to Jesus and you can remember the day and the time and what happened and who was talking to you or what you were reading or where you were or the sermon that you were listening to. And it's very, very dramatic. And for others of you, it was a much, much more gradual process, a process where you can't really identify the day and the time. You just know that you have been transformed by Jesus. And maybe even it's a little bit mundane. Still, it's Jesus that has changed your life. But regardless of the unique specifics of how you came to Jesus or how anyone comes to Jesus, there are some things that all of our testimonies have in common. Whether they're dramatic, whether they're gradual, whether they're like a moment we can identify, whether it's a period of months or years where we kind of come to understand that this Jesus is real. There are some elements in our testimony that are, that are common to every testimony, and I think we see it in Paul's conversion experience as well. Let me just mention them today. One is this. Our testimony always involves a God who surprises us who surprises us. Uh, up to this point in his life, Paul thought he pretty much had God figured out. Like he had figured God out. He knew God could never become a human being. That's not what God, that's not what a God does. It's not what the God of Abraham does. He can never become a human being. When he heard Stephen talking about how because of Jesus, the physical temple was going to be destroyed, how because of Jesus, the Old Testament animal sacrificial system was gonna be rendered obsolete. Paul knew that God would never do that. Paul had God figured out. Paul believed in a God that fit his own narrative of what God looks like. And sometimes we do the same thing. Like we all are in danger at times or tempted at times to form our own little narratives about what God is like. And sometimes they're narratives that were shaped by our parents. Sometimes they were narratives that are shaped by our early childhood experiences. Sometimes they're narratives that are shaped by the people that we hang out with, the crowd that we hang out with. Sometimes they are narratives that shaped by culture and the momentum of culture. You know, no matter where you are in history, Culture is always moving in a particular direction. And sometimes the way culture is moving shapes our narrative about who God is and what God says and what God calls us to do and all of that. Or sometimes our narratives are shaped by focusing on certain verses in the Bible that we really like and ignoring the verses that we don't like or that we find a little bit more difficult. All of us tend to have like a canon within the canon, a little Bible within the Bible. Or we sound so spiritual because we quote these verses and those verses are true, but there are other verses that sometimes we don't wanna lean into because they're a little bit more uncomfortable to us. They don't quite fit the narrative that we have about God. And whatever it is that shaped our narrative about God, whatever that is, we tend to use that narrative as the lens through which we look at God, through which we look at the world. We do the same thing that drives us crazy, or a lot of us crazy when it comes to the media, right? Both on the right and the left, like all of the media. And, and what so often happens today is that almost every story that is told 
is told in a way that fits a narrative that has already been formed. I was talking to some people this week who have said, I've just stopped watching, like I read the news and I try to curate the news that way, but I've just kind of stopped watching the news because on both sides, on every side, on the right and the left, it's like a narrative has been formed and then whatever it is that happens gets put into that narrative, looked at through that lens. And we sometimes do the same thing. We have our narratives about God. And when we bump up against a scripture that doesn't fit the narrative, we just ignore it or we say things like this. And maybe you've said this, maybe you've heard someone say this, you know, like the God I know would never do that. The God I know would never ask that. The God I know would never focus on that. The God I know, it's like we have this there, like Paul, we have things figured out we have this narrative that, about, that we have about God and then we fit everything into that narrative. We feel like we've got God figured out and based on that we create this box and try and force God into it. And that's what Paul had done. But then, on this road to Damascus, Paul meets a God that didn't fit into his narrative. <laughs> he meets a God that challenges his narrative. And that's why Paul's first reaction to the blinding light and to Jesus speaking to him is not, God, what are you doing? That's not the first question he asks. When, when, when this blinding light comes and this voice comes from heaven, his first reaction, who are you? Who are you, Lord? I don't, I don't even know who you are. You know, sometimes you say that to someone who you've known for a while and then they do some things that don't fit like, what you think they normally do or how they function or how they rack and you go, who are you? That's what Paul is saying here. Who are you? This is not the God that I figured out. This is not the God that I thought I understood everything about. The God that Paul is experiencing doesn't fit the narrative he's created about God. Now, why is that so important? It's important because the only God who can change your heart is the God who is bigger than the God your heart created. The only God who can change your heart is the God who is bigger than the God your heart created. We need a God we can't control. We need a God we can't fully figure out. We need a God who is bigger than the narratives that we have formed and the boxes that we have created. We need a God who is constantly surprising us. We need a God who would tell us things that we do not want to hear. We need a God who will ask us to do things that we do not want to do. We need a God who can change our heart because he's not the product of our heart. We need a God who can change our heart because he's not the product of our heart. That's the first thing. Our testimony always involves a God who surprises us. But secondly, it always involves a God, a resurrection that transforms us. A God who surprises us and a resurrection that transforms us. When Paul asks the question, who are you? The response he gets initially is simply this, I'm Jesus. Like, that's it. I'm Jesus. That's who you're talking to. And it's in that moment that Paul realizes something that turns his whole world upside down. He realizes that this Jesus 
that taught for a few years about all this stuff about the kingdom, this Jesus that was crucified on the cross, and he was a witness to that, this Jesus that was put in a tomb, this Jesus where there's all these rumors about what happened, like this Jesus where all that happened just like a minute before, that this Jesus is alive and talking to him. Like it just changes everything. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, he had all kinds of objections concerning the claims that Jesus made about himself. And all kinds of objections about the claims that the followers of Jesus made about Jesus. Especially the whole idea that Jesus was God. Like how could, how could Jesus be God, right? Paul knew that there was only one God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He knew that there was only one God. And if Jesus was God, then that meant somehow that Jesus' followers were like proclaiming that there were two gods and, and that's blasphemy. And that's why this whole thing needs to be eradicated from the face of the planet. But when Jesus comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, what's interesting is that even though he has all of these questions about Really, they're theological questions that Paul has. They're understandable questions. They're important questions. But when Jesus comes to Paul, when the resurrected Jesus comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, he does not say to him, hey, Saul, let me explain the Trinity to you. You clearly don't understand the Trinity. It's one God, three persons. I'm one of the three persons. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't try to explain why the temple is going to be destroyed, the physical temple is going to be destroyed. He doesn't try to explain why the Old Testament animal sacrificial system is going to be rendered obsolete because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He doesn't do any of that. And it's not that those were not important Questions and that it's not, it's not that they didn't need to be understood. And Paul would definitely come to understand all of that better later on. It's just that in, the, in that moment, all of those things paled in comparison to being in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. It's not that the questions went away. It's just that the questions could no longer keep Paul from being transformed. It could no longer keep him from experiencing the change that God wanted to do in his heart. Now, just like Paul, like we deal with all kinds of questions, right? And they're different questions. They're not the questions that Paul was dealing with. I don't know that any of you have ever struggled with like, why is there not an, a physical temple in Jerusalem? Or, like, why is the Old Testament animal sacrificial system no longer? Like, I don't think those are the questions that people are dealing with, but we deal with our own questions. Questions about a loving God and the presence of suffering in the world. Questions about hypocrisy in the church. Questions about sexual ethics. Questions about the response to injustice in the world. Questions about the horrible things that have some times been done in the name of Jesus and, and that continue to be done in the name of Jesus. Lots of questions, important questions, really important questions. And when we encounter the risen Jesus, it's not that the questions go away. We need to keep asking the questions. The questions 
are important. I continue to ask questions. There continue to be things that I'm processing through trying to understand about this God thing and about how he works in the world and what he wants from us, all of that. It's just that the questions no longer keep us from being transformed. The questions no longer serve as a barrier to God changing us and shaping us and forming us into the people that God has created us to be. The questions cease to become our excuse for staying just the way we are. You know, sometimes, here's the thing about questions. I love questions. I love the fact that we're thinking through our faith. I love being in conversation with people that are asking questions. But here's the deal with questions, is that sometimes people ask questions to get answers. And other times people ask questions just to kind of avoid ever having to change, ever having to be transformed, ever having to give up control to someone else. And sometimes people live their lives asking questions and processing things, but through that whole process, allowing God to transform them, allow, allowing his formation to take place in their life. And other times, people live their whole lives asking questions just as an avoidance technique to never having to change. So it's okay to ask questions, but you need to ask the question of why am I asking the question? Like, what is my motivation for asking this question? Is it really to try to understand some things and get some answers, or is it just to be able to stay where I am because I'm comfortable where I am and I do not want to change? Why we have to question the questions that we are asking. And then thirdly, our testimony always involves a God who surprises us, a resurrection that transforms us, and a relationship that makes us Beautiful. Look again at verses three through five. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? <laughs> Lord, Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied. Now, the idea that Paul was actually persecuting Jesus would have been unfathomable to Paul. Think about it. This glorious figure shows up and knocks Paul to the ground and confronts him by saying, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul is probably thinking, I'm not Sure who you are, but I had no intention of persecuting you. Not as bright as you are. Not as like glorious as you are. Like I had no intention of persecuting you. I'm on my way to persecute people in Damascus. I'm on my way to persecute them. I'm not trying to persecute you. What do you mean persecuting you? And what Jesus is saying here about Paul persecuting him is something that's so radical that it actually becomes the centerpiece of Paul's theology of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. Because what Jesus is saying is that I have such an intimate relationship, such an intimate union 
with those who follow me that whatever is true of them is true of me as well. So if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me as well. And remember, Jesus said that in some other places as well, in Matthew. When you feed them, you're feeding me. When you visit them in prison, you're visiting me. When you care for them, you're caring for me. He's talking about this intimate union that he has with those who he has created and recreated. And that's why Paul never forgot that. In fact, it became the theme of almost everything that Paul wrote about Jesus. It's this idea that the relationship that Jesus has with those who follow him is so interconnected, so intimate, that whatever we're experiencing, he is experiencing too. And whatever he is experiencing, whatever is true for Jesus, is true for us as well. And that's why in Romans 6, Paul can talk about how when Jesus died on the cross, if we're in Jesus, we died as well. That's Paul's favorite phrase to describe a person who's in relationship with Jesus. I mean, we could talk about being saved, born again, whatever. Paul's favorite phrase is in Christ. In Christ. Christ in us. He uses that over and over again. And that's why when he talks about in Romans 6 how when Jesus died on the cross, if we're in Christ, that we died too. And when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, if we're in Christ, we are raised to life as well. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us, seated us at the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That has so many implications. It means that when Jesus died for your sins, if you're in him, it's as if you died and paid for your sins. It means that when Jesus was raised from the grave and given the place of honor at the right hand of the Father because of everything he had done, if you are in him, it's as if you had accomplished all of those things as well. But here's the implication that we sometimes forget. If you are in Christ, it means that you are as beautiful to your heavenly Father as Jesus is. I don't know about you, but sometimes I become so aware of my ugliness, so aware of my brokenness, so aware of where I fall short of the glory of God. And it seems like the longer I've journeyed with Jesus, the more aware I become. And I think that has to do with the fact that the closer and closer you get to the holiness of God, the more and more aware you become of your own brokenness. The, you know, you can only think that you've got your act together and that everything's measuring up if you stay pretty far away from God. It's like if you're pretty far away from God, it's like, yeah, my life's pretty good, I'm a pretty good person, don't really see any huge things, but the closer you get to the holy God, the more aware you become of your own brokenness and your own sin and where you fall short, and that's certainly true for me, and sometimes I get so almost like overwhelmed by my own ugliness 
Now there are three things, right, that we can do with our ugliness. We, we can ignore it. <laughs> we can ignore it. We can just stay busy. And in fact, that it's so easy in a place like Washington, D.C., and I know we're coming out of this pandemic, and we kind of slowed down maybe a little bit during the pandemic, but already I'm sensing that, that pace that is beginning to pick up, and it's so easy in the midst of the pace of life and the busyness of life to just ignore our ugliness, just to pretend like it's not there, just to preoccupy ourselves with just other stuff that keeps us from thinking about it and focusing on it and all of that, or we can like wallow in it. We can wallow in our ugliness. We can just let it consume us and eventually it will destroy us. Or we can focus on the beauty of Jesus and keep reminding ourselves that his beauty is our beauty. That Jesus entered into our ugliness so that we could enter in to his beauty. That Jesus became ugly on the cross so that we could become beautiful. I, I know I've talked about this before, but it, it's been a number of years about when my brother passed away, Gil, my oldest brother, such a role model and mentor in my life, and, and he got cancer, and, and, and cancer's ugly. Uh, cancer's awful, just like all the physical things that we deal with, and this pandemic, and the coronavirus is ugly, and Alzheimer's is ugly, and heart attacks are ugly, and Strokes are ugly and all of this stuff that's not the way God created this world to be. It's not the way it's going to be when he comes back and restores it and redeems it. It's just ugly. And I remember Gil going through the ugliness of cancer. And it progressed um, pretty fast. And what I remember the most about all of that was the relationship between Gil and his wife Darlene, my sister-in-law. And what a precious relationship. And I saw in them lived out what this theological reality is of, of Jesus' beauty being our beauty and our ugliness being taken on by Jesus. Because that's exactly what Darlene did. Is that during that time that she entered into the ugliness of this situation, she entered into the ugliness of Gil's cancer and she... And the ugliness that he was going through became that which she was going through. The pain that he was going through became the pain that she was going through. The uncertainty that he was going through became the uncertainty that she was going through. But the other happened as well. Is that her beauty became his beauty. Her life became his life. Like she entered into his life, but he entered into her life. And she, he experienced a beauty that was not his own in that moment, but was given to him by someone who loved him so much. He experienced life in that moment that was being ripped away from him, but was being given by someone who loved him so much. And that's what God has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. Is he has entered into our ugliness 
so that we could enter into his beauty. And that's why worship is so important, folks. You know, we talk about how important worship is, and I'm not just talking about when we come together and sing. That's a huge part of it. But that's why worship is so important, whether it's when we're all gathered together, when it, whether it's when we find moments during the day to just spend time with Jesus, to just read about Jesus, to just understand Jesus more. Like that's what worship is all about. That's why worship is so important because every time we worship, we are reminded of the beauty of Jesus and we're reminded of the fact that his beauty is our beauty. That his beauty makes us beautiful. And if there's ever a time when we need to be reminded of that, like in the midst of everything that is going on in culture, everything that tends to remind us of our ugliness, we need to constantly be coming into the presence of the beautiful one. Not to contrast ourselves with him, but to realize that his beauty has become our beauty. And our ugliness was taken on by him, that he took on our ugliness so that we could take on his beauty. And you cannot live the beautiful life. You cannot live with a sense of your own beauty unless you are entering in to worship with the beautiful one. That's why our focus has to always be on Jesus. God, we are so thankful for what you have done for us on the cross. And Lord, we're so thankful that whatever our stories are and however it is that you work in our life and bring us to you, and whether it's dramatic or not dramatic or whatever, that you are always at work, that you are the God who is always surprising us that you are the God who raised Jesus from the dead and that transforms us, that you are the one who makes us beautiful. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who have, who have made that decision to follow you, that we would walk in the beautiness that is the, the beautiful thing that is ours in Christ, the beauty that is ours in Christ. And Lord, for those that perhaps have never made that decision, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they take on the beauty of Christ. In the name of Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together and worship.